By identifying high impact issues and building consensus among uh, really diverse constituencies and taking a bipartisan approach that transcends conventional political divide. And we need to build a sustainable model for college athletics while offering even more support for our student athletes to ensure their success. That's going to take the ability to engage and motivate Congress to enact legislation that helps us modernize our framework. Governor Baker, is there anything comparable in your career or go to Congress to Capitol Hill and, and try to find relief or resolution on the NIL matter and, and considering a working relationship with players that you know could result in collective bargaining or something more? How much time do you expect to spend in Washington, D.C.? What gives you confidence, given the state of this current federal government, that you'd be able to find perhaps bipartisan agreement on, on making changes that college sports need? The popularity and interest in college sports continues to grow across the country and around the world. They create a pathway to opportunity for hundreds of thousands of student-athletes annually, and they're vital and essential to the life on our campuses. They're a source of thrilling entertainment and really important moments for millions of fans across the country and really are embedded in the culture of our country. It's important that a lot of these issues um, get dealt with and get dealt with in a way uh, that works. And, and when I say works, I mean works for everybody. It can't just work for a few. The, the big worry I have, which I'm sure is the worry a lot of people have when it comes to college sports, is that we can't figure out a way to organize and, and frame the future of college sports on a platform where we can deal with the fact that there are a lot of different organizations with a wide variety of capabilities and capacities to participate, we're going to lose a tremendous opportunity to provide real opportunity to literally hundreds of thousands of kids going forward. To me, the jewel of college sports is the opportunity and the access that it provides to so many people and the experiences and the learning that comes with that and can make a case generally to the public to their student athletes, to their alumni and their fans about what the best way to ensure that we don't lose this jewel going forward. There's a lot of sports fans in America, a lot. And I think many of them deeply value their college uh, experience. It's an enormous community and it's one that, that I believe is going to want to see that opportunity continue to be part of the student athletes' lives and the sort of school communities' lives and the, and, and the broader community of alumni and fans going forward. And that in some ways, I think, is an enormous asset when you're trying to have a discussion about what the best way to ensure that what we have is not lost going forward. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that you can find all of my podcast materials on my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And if you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email. I'd love to hear from you at cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X at gmail.com. All right, today is December 19th, 
2022. And I wanted to get a quick episode up to talk about a couple of things that happened recently. Of course, we learned that the NCAA selected a new president, and it is Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. And I'm going to talk about that. And then a regional director of the National Labor Relations Board sitting in Los Angeles, I believe uh, this is Region 31, said that a case against USC, Southern California, the Pac-12, and the NCAA can go forward. There were uh, a couple of charges that were filed after Jennifer Abruzzo, the National Labor Relations Board's general counsel, said that athletes were being misclassified as student athletes rather than employees. And this case is a meaningful step towards recognizing certain categories of athletes as employees of their university, very similar to the Northwestern case from 2014 that I've talked so much about in this podcast and the importance of that year 2014. There's a new uh, twist in this case that is really a threat to the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, and that is that this uh, regional director in Los Angeles said that the Pac-12 and the NCAA might be what are called joint employers with USC, and uh, that has enormous potential consequences to the Power Five conferences and to the NCAA because they would be deemed employers of these athletes if the athletes can prove up at the hearing that they are indeed employees. And that joint employer status could solve some of the problems that were presented in the Northwestern case because the NLRB or the NLRA, the act itself, National Labor Relations Act, applies only to private entities, and Northwestern was private, and the regional board, after an evidentiary hearing, held that, yes, these athletes were employees, and I have reviewed that case very carefully. In my judgment, it wasn't even a close call. When you look at the actual evidence of what these athletes actually did for Northwestern University, and then, of course, Northwestern appealed to the national board, and the national board punted. They basically said that this public-private distinction in the NLRA was a real problem because when you look at the 65 Power 5 schools, I think 52, 53 are public schools. So you, you have only a small number of schools that the NLRA could apply to. And the way to get at that is to have the conferences and the NCAA be treated as employers. And of course, the NCAA and the Power Five conferences are all private entities. They are set up as private nonprofit associations, which means that if they are deemed to be employers, they are indeed covered by the NLRA. So if the conferences in the NCAA are joint employers under the NLRA, then all of the members of those associations would be covered as employees, including the state schools. And that's really where I think this thing may be headed, to try to solve that fundamental problem in the coverage of the NLRA. And, uh, you know, in other episodes, I've talked quite a bit about this Murphy-Sanders bill. Chris Murphy, senator from Connecticut, a Democrat, and, and Bernie Sanders from Vermont, co-sponsored a piece of legislation that would have granted a certain classes of athletes employee status under the NLRA. And that bill went directly to solving this public-private problem. 
and basically said that the public institutions for purposes of that bill were going to be treated as private entities, so they would be deemed employers under the NLRA. And then that public-private issue is not a problem. I think that's where this thing may be headed. And in the Johnson case that I've talked so much about on under the Fair Labor Standards Act, that's a hourly wage law, whereas the NLRA goes to work conditions and unionization and how you treat your employees and to, to broader compensation issues outside of hourly wages. But in this Johnson case under the FLSA, the athletes in that case made a similar argument that the NCAA and the conferences were joint employers with the individual schools that they named in that lawsuit. And the uh, district court's ruling was favorable on joint employer status. So that issue is a real problem for the NCAA and the Power Five. But this is a very complicated area of the law, and it runs through an administrative pathway, at least at first. And once the administrative remedies have been exhausted, a party who doesn't like the result can then take the case into federal court. And even though the NLRA requires parties to a case like this, like this USC case, to try to negotiate, try to settle it out, there's zero chance that that's going to happen. So this case, assuming that the regional director finds that the USC football and basketball players, men's and women's, are indeed employees. And then this case you know, goes up to the NLRB, the national board, and they say yes, if they affirm the regional board's decision, then we're going into federal court. And this could take a long, long time. And the NCAA has a, a lot of incentive to drag this thing out, and they are so good at doing that. So I'm going to talk about this issue separately, but it, it is consequential in my judgment. And I'm going to talk about it in this episode just in the context of timing, because one strategy that the NCAA and Power Five may pursue now that they lost the advantage they were praying for in the midterm elections, they so desperately wanted a Republican Congress, not a 50-50 Congress, but a Republican-controlled Congress, where the Republicans had control of the committees, what made it uh, into a committee, what made it out of a committee, what made it to the floor, what the committee assignments were. And if they had gotten that, we'd be having a much different discussion right now. And people like Roger Wicker and Tommy Tuberville, who I'm going to mention here in a bit because of an article that just came out, I don't know, a couple of hours ago that I want to talk a little bit about. But you get uh, Wicker and Tuberville and Manchin is now in the discussion. And then you've got Jerry Moran and you've got Lindsey Graham. All these Republican senators would be pressing the gas to try to get a bill in place that would end the athletes' rights movement. And that didn't happen. So one of the things I said that I was going to be paying attention to post-midterm was how the in-system stakeholder benefit started to talk about their options. And we're starting to hear some of that now. And when you look at the timing issues, not just this NLRA charge with uh, USC, but also the Johnson case, both of those threats to the Power Five and the NCAA are not immediate. And this NLRB case could stretch out into 2024. So can the Johnson case. One of the things that people don't understand about Johnson. This, th that case hasn't been covered 
very closely, in my judgment. And one of the things about that case that really hasn't been on the table is that the Third Circuit, in looking at that case, is only looking at a single issue, and that is whether or not athletes can be employees for purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act, or whether, as the NCAA contends, the NCAA is immunized from any responsibility under that law because, as a matter of law, athletes can't be employees. And I talked about that in a couple of episodes on the Johnson case. But if the Third Circuit says, yes, athletes could be employees, that doesn't mean the case is over. That means that the case can go back to the district court where it was filed, and the case could then be litigated the way that any other case would be litigated. This appeal, the NCAA's interlocutory appeal, which is unusual because appeals usually can't occur until there's a final judgment and all issues in the case have been resolved. This is a very special procedure. And the NCAA is basically saying, we're going to nip this in the bud right now. Athletes can't be employees. And, and they are citing to some really bad precedent, including this Berger case out of the Seventh Circuit that I talked about several months ago. But if the Third Circuit says, yes, they could be employees, and it goes back and it goes through the normal litigation process, that could take years as well. There's no telling how long it's going to be before there's a resolution of that case. And of course, it could also settle without the NCAA having any really bad precedent on the books. So, you know, a lot of people are getting jacked up about Johnson and the administrative case through the NLRB, but those are down the road a bit. And Listening to what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are starting to say about congressional engagement now, this may be another situation much like the situation that occurred after the Georgia special election in 2020, where the NCAA and Power Five are just going to tread water until we get to the elections in 2024. And the Senate map doesn't look that favorable for the Democrats. And you could be looking, very well looking, at a Republican Senate in 2024, and who knows who's going to be in control of the White House. And if they can tread water long enough and drag out the administrative side through this NLRB charge and then also drag out the Johnson suit or, or settle it, they may have a chance to, to do what they wanted to do right now with a Republican-controlled Senate, but they didn't get it. The Republicans just shot themselves in the foot in the in the midterm elections. So uh, you have to think the way that these people think. And I guess before I talk about Charlie Baker, I am going to just talk a little bit about this article that just came out maybe an hour and a half ago on Sportico. And it's written by Dan Libet. And he understands these issues as well as any writer in the business right now. And he understands them in a really nuanced way. And he's written some really good stuff. But I think since he joined Sportico, he uh, sometimes takes his foot off the gas on some issues that he could really press. And this is one of them, really, j just to show how dishonest the NCAA has been in its engagement with Congress, going back to 2019 when it tried to get a running head start with a Republican-controlled Senate to try to eliminate all external regulatory threats in one fell swoop through uh, preemption. You get rid of state legislatures through antitrust immunity. You get that to eliminate federal courts from the regulatory field. 
And then you get a provision that athletes can't be employees, and it solves all of the issues that the NCAA is so concerned about right now with this NLRB charge and the Johnson case. But uh, Libet did an article titled, Tuberville throws cold water on NCAA antitrust exemption. And when I saw this, my first thought was, where the hell's Tommy Tuberville been? And of course, Tuberville is the senator, one of the senators from the state of Alabama. He is a Republican and he is a former big time college football coach. And one of his stops was at Auburn. That's how he found himself in Alabama politics. But after a really cringeworthy, race-baiting political speech that he gave out in Nevada, I believe it was, in October. He just disappeared. But he was trying to put some uh, bill together with Joe Manchin, and they really didn't speak with any specificity about what that bill was going to look like, what was going to be included in it. And I suspected that it was going to be another nil disguise bill. They were going to roll it up under the guise of Neil and these collectives. And John Thune of South Dakota, Republican senator, he put out a bill that was targeted to the collectives. I think that pre-midterm, Tuberville and Manchin and Wicker, and Wicker was talking about what uh, Tuberville and Manchin were doing. They're all reading from the same page and they're communicating with each other and they're formulating their strategy in conjunction with uh, Greg Sankey and all of their lobbyists and their lawyers. And they had their plan ready to go. It just, it just got thwarted when they uh, failed to re- regain control of the Senate. But Tuberville uh, was going to put together a bill, I believe, that had nil as the shiny object, and we were going to get this Wild West nil marketplace under control. And one of the components of taking down nil was uh, preemption and eliminating all these state laws, which have had very little consequence, actually no consequence, because none of them have been enforced in another point that I I wish the media would pay more attention to. But I think they're going to throw in antitrust immunity. And then, of course, athletes can't be employees. But that's that's not going to happen now. And I, I talked about this a couple of episodes ago and the consequence of the Georgia special election in this cycle between Warnock and Walker. And since Warnock won that election, even with Kirsten Sinema's semi-defection from the uh, Democrats, she still caucuses with them and she still counts in their ledger. So the Democrats still have a control, majority control of the Senate, which means they have control over the committee process. They're going to have Democrat chairs. They're going to have some flexibility. They're not going to be operating under this power sharing agreement. And it means that they can get some legislation moving. But uh, Tuberville's comments in this article are just almost comical. I mean, you, you really have to have a sense of humor. If you pay close attention, to what's happening on these issues and to people like Tommy Tuberville. And he's a United States senator, and I do my best to respect the office, even if I don't have a lot of good feelings for the person who occupies that office. So I have very low expectations when I see something coming from Tuberville on, on any issue. But this is just breathtaking. And so he's saying that now, all of a sudden, there's just no way that the NCAA and Power Five are going to get this antitrust immunity thing. And of course, you're not going to get antitrust immunity in this Congress. You have no business getting antitrust immunity at all. And you tried to get it in Austin and you lost. You lost. Now your congressional campaign is on pause because that's a huge ask. And even in the 2020 
cycle when the Republicans controlled the Senate and they were just running through these hearings. There were Republican senators like Mike Lee from Utah who weren't crazy about the antitrust immunity. And I believe Lee's objection was a broad principled objection. He just didn't think that Congress should be handing out immunity cards to market participants to allow them to operate outside of and above our nation's free competition laws. I mean, that is a massive, massive ask. And so was the preemption of state laws relating to college sports. And so was a provision from Congress that athletes can't be employees. Any one of those asks would have been extraordinary for any market participant, particularly a market participant that is a private nonprofit association. It's just breathtaking what they asked for. And one of the problems with that template, and I have said this to him blue in the face, is that the way that the NCAA and Power Five ramped up their campaign beginning in 2019 and the running head start they had going into 2020 and through COVID, they were still getting hearings conducted on this garbage. But that head start allowed decision makers and the public and stakeholders to really never have to wrestle with whether any one of those three federal protections and immunities were appropriate in the first place. And we still haven't had that discussion. And I think that is one of the fundamental flaws in this whole process. And if, if there was ever a time to just start from scratch and throw out every bill that's been proposed in Congress, in in the Senate or in the House. Just flush them down the toilet. And let's start from scratch and challenge every premise that the NCAA and Power Five brought into this discussion. And do in 2023 what should have been done in 2019 and early 2020. That's not the way Washington works. And there's some comments in this article that really speak to that. So when I look at the title of this article, Tuberville Throws Cold Water on NCAA Antitrust Exemption, I'm like, of course, you know, Tuberville has no choice, but he's talking as if it is some kind of a concession. And then uh, Libet, I mean, he, he did uh, Tuberville some solids here, and he says, Tuberville and Manchin have been working since the summer on crafting narrow legislation that would try to create and regulate a national standard for college athlete rights. Well, how do you know that? Narrow? Uh, We haven't seen a a word of this bill. We haven't seen a draft. Nothing's been introduced. How do we know that it was narrow? And that was one of the points that I made when Tuberville comes out of nowhere with this mansion thing, and then Nick Saban is invoked, Sir Saban. (laughs) Everybody's saying, boys, wild west marketplace, we've got to take care of this thing. We've got to shut this thing down. But we don't know what was going to be in that bill, and we still don't know. So on that theme, here's what we get from Tommy. He says, we've got to take care of all these recruiting possibilities first. And once we get through this, we would like to stay out of it. If you get Congress involved, it is not a rule. It is a law. We don't want to jump in this with all four feet and say, this is how it's going to be with every situation. And to read this, you'd think, Tommy Tuberville and the Republican senators who've been driving the train on this since really late 2019 have been dragged kicking and screaming to Congress. And now old Tommy and his buddies just don't want to jump in with all four feet. We got to be cautious here. We got to make sure that this is a measured approach and that we are really thinking this thing through. That's sure as hell not what the NCAA and the Power Five and their uh, friendly senators, Republican senators, were doing in 2020 
or in the run-up to July 1st, 2021, when the state nail laws are going into effect, they went all out. I'm going to use a basketball analogy, even though this was a football show. They went into the full court press. And remember that on May 23rd, 2020, all five Power Five conference commissioners sent a joint letter to both chambers of Congress laying out their case for the three federal protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement. And they said, time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. It was full steam ahead. They had their collective foot on the gas, and they wanted to get this damn thing done. The same thing happened in June of 2021, before the Austin case, when the NCAA and Power Five went on their knees to the Senate Commerce Committee on June 9th and begged for at least preemption. But they were also asking for antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. So what's changed, Tommy? Now, what's changed is that you don't have control of the narrative. You don't have control of the, the votes, and you don't have control of the committees. But this is where it really starts to get interesting because Tuberville says that he expects that he and Manchin are going to get something introduced in the spring of 2023. We'll see. But Libet says that last week, according to Multiple Hill sources, Tuberville and Manchin held an NCAA-related discussion with Democrat Senators Cory Booker uh, of New Jersey and Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. And of course, they are the co-sponsors of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And uh, Libet points out that the original Athletes' Bill of Rights had a revenue-sharing component, and that got pulled when it was re-released this past August, August of 2022. And Cory Booker said at a Drake Group Symposium in May of 2022, before the bill was re-released, that the reason that he was pulling the revenue-sharing component was because of Title IX concerns, gender equity concerns. And we're back to that false, divisive, boogeyman that assumes a zero-sum equity world. There's only a fixed amount of equity to go around in college sports, and any equity we give to African-American men in Power 5 football and men's basketball is equity that we're stealing from athletes in the non-revenue or Olympic sports and women's sports. I mean, it's just, it's a ridiculous argument on its face, but that argument has such power at the political level. And Cory Booker caved. And Tuberville says that Booker reached out to, to him. So I have no idea what the hell's going on there. But Booker wants to please everybody, but he's bidding against himself. And when Booker's name comes up in these discussions now, I think you have to pull the yellow caution flag. He is not all in on these athletes' rights issues. And he's bidding against himself. I talked about that when I, when I saw his comments at the that Drake Group symposium. So he says, uh, yeah, Corey, you know, he came to talk to me. He wanted to talk to me. He says, Corey comes from a different angle. He saw the progress we were making and wanted to make sure that we were talking with stakeholders. We didn't overlook health care until after the fact. Okay, all that progress you were making. Be interesting to know, maybe they are making progress. I've said that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And I guess I, ju I should just say this too. We're in the political funhouse. I've said that many, many times before in this podcast. And Senator Chris Murphy, Blumenthal's colleague from Connecticut, Democrat from Connecticut, he was at that same Drake Group symposium on a, a different panel. But he said, look, Congress shouldn't be involved in this. And the only reason Congress is involved is that the NCAA 
can't do right by the athletes. They can't keep their house in order, and they refuse to change on their own. So it has been external regulators who have forced them to change, and they are still resisting that change with everything they've got. But he said, be careful what you ask for, because you might wind up with a piece of legislation that you don't like that much. And Tuberville is correct about this, that once you have that bill in place, you just can't turn around and repeal it. You can do that at the state level. <laughs> the state legislatures had no trouble immediately repealing their name, image, and likeness laws, including Alabama. And I've talked quite a bit about that as well. That law wasn't worth the paper it was written on. It was built on values. We have to protect the integrity of college sports. And we don't want these kids running around and getting all these payments and all these Wild West agents and all this stuff. We, we got to keep this under control. So this law is a law of values. That's what we were hearing from people like Nick Saban. And we, we heard that when, when, in the run-up to the Florida bill as well. And then as soon as the state of Alabama saw that that name, image, and likeness law was less favorable than this interim policy that the NCAA put out on June 30th of 2021, they flushed that damn Alabama name, image, and likeness bill down the toilet faster than you can say Tuscaloosa. Tuberville closes it out by talking about Mark Emerton. He knew Mark Emmert very well, no doubt, no doubt. And uh, Tuberville spoke with him a lot. And then Tuberville closes it out by saying, the problem the NCAA had is they were so vulnerable with lawsuits and couldn't afford it. It was money going out the door again and again. We can help to some point, but we don't want to go overboard on antitrust and all those things. And on that antitrust immunity point, and this ties into the timing issues with respect to the employee pathways, the NLRA and the FLSA, and that is that if you're looking at the threats that the NCAA is facing right now, you have those two employee-related issues and proceedings, but then you also have the antitrust issue, and, and that is running through this house litigation on the West Coast, which I've talked quite a bit about, and we'll be talking about some more, because uh, some of the, the bills that are Republican-sponsored and NCAA-friendly include retroactive antitrust immunity on name, image, and likeness cases. And the reason that's so important is that House is a name, image, and likeness case. It is essentially O'Bannon 2.0, and it poses enormous risk to the NCAA because there's a damages component, and under federal antitrust laws, if you get a damage award, it is tripled. And the, the uh, policy behind that is to provide a really strong deterrent from market actors to violate free market principles, free competition principles. But that uh, could be a really big number. So the NCAA wants that wiped off the books, and they're trying to do that through congressional intervention. That seems unlikely because of the current composition of the uh, Senate. And so you have to look at the timing there, too. And this is a big antitrust case. It's a class action case. The parties are still in the what's called the class certification process, which is a preliminary matter where the court decides what if any class or classes will be formed under the, the rules governing class certification. And that's a, a precondition to really getting into the nuts and bolts of the litigation process. We're pretty early in that process. And that House case, if it goes forward, and if the NCAA and Power Five don't settle that case, that could run in well into 2024. So all of these threats are more remote than I think that 
people understand in terms of timing, which gives the uh, in-system stakeholder beneficiaries the opportunity to go into the four corners, that metaphor I love, that's a, a delay tactic that was made famous by uh, legendary UNC coach Dean Smith. They're, they're, in the, they're going to be in the four corners with these employee pathways and then this house case to drag those things out as long as they can to get to the next election when they can have their way in Congress. But Tuberville closes out his curious quotes in this article in Sportico by making an observation that I think a lot of people would agree with, and that is that Charlie Baker is walking into an impossible job at the NCAA, and that's a nice segue into my discussion of of Baker. And before I get into a discussion of how the NCAA rolled this out and what Baker had to say in a very tightly controlled, I don't even know if you call it a press conference, I'm not sure what the hell it was, but the NCAA threw together this presentation of Baker and he spoke and Linda Livingstone, the chair of the Board of Governors, spoke and Grant Hill spoke and then a small group of reporters. We now know who the small group of reporters actually is. I've been making a joke of that going back to 2019 when the NCAA wanted to get a favorable story out. They would basically issue a press release and and say that those comments were the product of a discussion with a small group of reporters. And then those reporters were never identified, but I identified them by seeing what articles were written. And I'm going to keep my powder try, uh, dry on that. But some of the usual suspects on my small group of reporters list were right there in that press conference. Baker fielded some questions and he didn't really answer many of them. And part of that is, yeah, he's new. And it's not clear to me how much he really understands about what's been going on in college sports, what the depth of his knowledge is. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But, you know, it was clear from the way that the NCAA was propagandizing this job search and from the actual search criteria itself that was on the Turnkey ZRG website, that this was Congress, Congress, Congress. And that's exactly what this rollout confirmed. But they wanted somebody with some political chops. And it's not clear to me who all they talked to. We never saw a short list. And I had predicted that they really wanted a woman. It was going to be a woman who got this job. And I was wrong about that. And honestly, when you look at, at Baker, you look at Emmert, I don't see a which difference between them. But you don't know who, who they talked to. You don't know who said no to this job. I would love to know that. If there were people that they really wanted who said no, I would like to know who they are and why they said no. Because I think that speaks to how the NCAA is perceived by people behind the scenes. But they're just, I mean, they're ramping up their propaganda campaign and their public relations machine is just rocking along. But when I first heard that they had hired Baker, and of course he's the, the governor of Massachusetts, I thought to myself, the skill set he's bringing in here really isn't that different than Mark Emmert's skill set. And I think that speaks more than anything to how political university president's jobs have become. And you're seeing that in some of the, the turnover at high-level uh, university presidents and, and chancellors in Power Five-type schools. And then who the candidates are. There was a recent hire at Colorado State by somebody who was simply not an academician. And it ruffled some feathers, but it speaks to how the business model of higher education is changing. 
And another thing I've emphasized in this podcast is that so many of the issues that we conveniently tag on college sports and some of the problems with college sports and what are pitched as tensions between big-time college sports and the values of higher education, those are really higher education problems because you're seeing some of the same stuff on the non-athletic side, on the academic side, so to speak. And then, of course, you have Ben Sass going from the United States Senate to the president of the University of Florida. And he was a president at some really small school. It was, uh, I think, a Lutheran school with 1,600 students. I think it's, it wasn't even an NCAA school athletically. It was an NAIA school. So his resume was very, very thin. But you get political connections. And that brings me to a point about, about Baker's background and his credentials. It's important that he has political experience But I think what the NCAA needs now more than ever are political connections. And there's little evidence that Charlie Baker really has uh, strong connections with the United States Senate. And so if he's going to be acting essentially as a lobbyist, then are you really getting anything different in terms of skill set than you got with Emmert? I mean, Emmert, of course, his ego just ran wild and, and he alienated so many people in Congress. I think just getting rid of him was important to kind of uh, do a reset at the public relations level. But in terms of the skill set, is Baker really that much different from Emmer? I don't think so. And in that regard, it's important that they didn't select a university president. They went completely outside that mold. And I don't think it was because they were trying to think outside the box, because this is not an outside the box hire. (laughs) I mean, it's not even close. I think it's because the presidential leadership movement was a miserable failure. And the very university presidents that were pounding their chest in the late 1980s to clean up college sports and to align the values of college sports with the values of higher education, and you had people on the Knight Commission, and then you had Miles Brand in the early 2000s, who was a former university president, saying we needed less money in the system. We needed less commercialization, less professionalization. And when the presidents got control of the governance structure at the NCAA, and they got that in 1996, where they eliminated one school, one vote, and went with a federated system, top-heavy, with football interests and university presidents and chancellors from uh, football schools. And those university presidents said, screw the principles of higher education and the values of higher education. We're taking the money. We're taking the money. And then Miles Brand did the same doggone thing when he became the NCAA president in 2003 and just two years before, when he was the toast of the town in academic circles because he fired Bob Knight at Indiana. Brand was the president of IU at the time. In a speech to the National Press Club, he was saying, look, we we need uh, less money in the system. We need less professionalization. We need less emphasis on college sports. And he closed out that speech by repeating a line that really was his tagline in that speech, and that is, we must renew the reform movement, academics first. We must renew the reform movement, academics first. (laughs) Academics, wow. Miles Brand took the money, and he devised this collegiate model as a grand justification for why it is appropriate for institutions of higher education to be in the business of big-time football and big-time men's basketball, to take that revenue and then send it down to participation opportunities. And I've talked so much about that. But that absurd business model was the justification for the Power Five schools to just 
put the commercialization and professionalization of football, men's basketball, on steroids. And there were no limits. There was no upper limit. Because as long as you were generating revenue, the more revenue, the more participation opportunities. That was the theory, at least. And the presidential leadership movement has turned out to be just an abject failure. Even the Knight Commission, which it was built around that central purpose, that central value of presidential control and responsibility. They started uh, saying, wait a minute, we need some independent uh, members on these governing boards because these university presidents and chancellors have taken the money and they seem surprised by that. (laughs) So what does Charlie Baker bring to the table as a former governor, soon to be former governor, and as a non-academician? He hasn't been involved in athletic administration. He played a, apparently a, a year of basketball at Harvard when he was an undergraduate, and he has talked long and loud about his family's connection to sports. They, they tried to pump him up as an authentic representative of athlete interest because he was an athlete. And the suggestion here is that he's going to be able to identify with these athletes. I, I don't know. There were a number of articles that, that came out, and it was really interesting because I think even for the kind of in-the-tank journalists, sports journalists, they were a little bit cautious here. And I, I think that the reason for that is that you have somebody who really looks a lot like Mark Emmert, and they really haven't, the NCAA hasn't really moved the needle much in terms of trying to bring in a new and fresh look. Yeah, I was reading all these articles, and actually, one of the best ones I read was by Dana O'Neill, who was at ESPN for a long time. Now she's at The Athletic. And there was a little bit uh, of tongue-in-cheek commentary there, and rightfully so, I think. But she really got right to the point, and she said, this is Mark Emmert 2.0, and Baker satisfies the three Ws, well-off, well-educated, and white. And she's absolutely right. So I think if you're looking at the checklist that was in that job description on the Turnkey ZRG website, Baker meets the former athlete check. He meets the Politico check. He meets the credibility check. But beyond that, I'm not sure what he is really bringing to the table. And then you have to remember too, and this didn't come up at all. Nobody's talked honestly about this. And that is that the very purpose of this constitutional makeover post-Austin, post-nil debacle, post-failure in the Senate to get protective federal legislation was to give the Power Five conferences the keys to the car in the voluntary regulation of college sports. And I've talked at length about what I think this was really all about. And this was Autonomy 2.0. I did an episode titled that back during this discussion about the purpose of this constitutional makeover. This was really the Power Five getting the final pieces of their takeover of the NCAA, their behind-the-scenes hostile takeover of NCAA. They didn't get in 2013, 2014. And the most important of those is absolute control over infractions and enforcement. The Power Five now can do whatever the hell they want to and not have to worry about any interference from the NCAA national office or with any outside interference from the independent accountability resolution process, which Greg Sankey and the Transformation Committee and the Infractions Process Committee just cut off at the knees. 
after this constitutional makeover. It's done. It's gone. And on the backside of that constitutional makeover, the NCAA national office has even less authority. The NCAA president has even less authority. And the board of governors is purely symbolic right now. The, the regulation, the voluntary regulation of college sports is running through Greg Sankey and the Division I Board of Directors and all these committees that have been set up to disguise the takeover. So does Charlie Baker understand that? I mean, has he been paying uh, close attention to what's been happening? Does he understand the history of the evolution of the Power Five and the history of college sports and the, the influence of the, the football products? And the fact, and this is the most important thing right now, the fact that the NCAA National Office is a puppet for big-time Power Five football interests. I think Charlie Baker's got a steep learning curve. And I did mention earlier in, in his credentials, he was in business as well. So he's been a businessman at a very sophisticated level. I think that experience comes in handy to the extent that the NCAA is going to be trying to find new ways to squeeze money out of the Division One men's basketball tournament. And a lot of people thought Mark Emmert had a set it and forget it mentality. And maybe they want Baker to come in and use his business acumen to try to uh, get some more money out of that product. And then a couple other things that just, I don't know, uh, just had me wondering kind of what the thinking was here on both sides of the table, the NCAA and, and wanting Baker and then Baker wanting to take this job. Uh, one of the questions that this staged press conference was from Dennis Dodd of CBS. And I, I like some of what Dodd does, but look, CBS is joined at the hip with the NCAA. He is not an objective journalist when it comes to the NCAA, but he asked uh, two questions. Uh, the other journalist asked one. The second question was, why the hell did you take this job? You know, who, who would want this job? And he was being facetious, but not really. But that question was top of mind for me. What do you see in this job? And who knows what uh, Baker sees, aside from the fact that he's going to be making probably 15, 20 times more money as the NCAA president than he did as the governor of the state of Massachusetts. That's important. And the other thing, too, is he's 66 years old. Who knows? I'm not going to engage in speculation about how Baker saw this job beyond the, the pro forma comments that he made at this press conference. But one of the things I think that's really important to understand here, and this is going to be a good segue into some of the things I took away from this press conference. I'm going to talk about that opening montage because I think it hits on all the themes that kind of jumped out to me as I uh, listened and, and there was a transcript of the press conference. And one of those themes at this press conference and, and one that I think was really an essential qualification or quality in the new NCAA president was this sense of being able to bring people together, the bipartisan approach. And Baker on paper does that as well as anybody in politics. He is a Republican governor in a Democrat state, and he's one of the highest ratings, approval ratings of any governor in the country. And there were talks about him being a national candidate. And in a very abstract way, that elusive and increasingly rare quality to be able to find that sweet spot in the middle of all of the national party noise that comes from both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans. 
finding that sweet spot in a state that is receptive to moderation, that's increasingly rare. And I think it's very valuable. In fact, I, I went back to look at some of Governor Baker's press conferences within the last few months before he was announced as the new NCAA president. I wanted to figure out where he was coming from. And personally, in, in terms of my personal politics, I loved what he had to say. And he makes a point that is so, so important for the future of American democracy. And that is the way that that Americans of all stripes feel about their country and their relationship to their country and the people that live in it is not driven by partisan politics. And what we get from the national parties is partisanship, Inc. It's an industry. And a lot of the polarization that we see on MSNBC or on Fox News, or on talk radio, across the political spectrum, and then the insanity on social media. That craziness is a market. It's an industry. And the national parties have captured that market and participated in that market to sell themes that they believe win elections. And if you self-identify as a Republican or a Democrat, you've chosen a side, you've chosen a team, there is a decent chance that you could be susceptible to some of this really angry, corrosive propaganda that comes from this media apparatus that is just raking the money in from the conflict. And there are very sophisticated algorithms that the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all those platforms that they use to figure out what gets a response and then they pile on the content because it sells more advertising and then they get more data from more users and they sell that for billions and billions of dollars to the highest bidder. It's an industry. It's a game and it's killing us. And Charlie Baker gets that. He gets that. And so one of his themes in these interviews, I watched maybe five or six interviews across maybe a six-month period, just get a sense of, of who he is. And I, I loved what he had to say. And he said, look, that parallel universe, that alternate reality that we allow ourselves to get sucked into through all this noise, this background noise, is an illusion. And in the reality space in America, the place where Americans do the living and the dying and the hugging and the crying, this is a beautiful country. And we care about each other. And we take care of each other. And it is a society, for the most part, that's filled with good faith, goodwill, tolerance, reasonableness, fairness, and moderation. We don't like extremes. And we don't like being pulled to one side or the other. We don't like being told that we have to wear one uniform or another or we're a terrible person. And Charlie Baker found a way to live in that reality and bring people together and, and to reinforce it. And I just, I think that that's gold. You know, I look at the Charlie Bakers of the world and I am so sad, really, that they don't have a place in national politics. Charlie Baker wouldn't last 30 minutes as a presidential candidate or even a candidate for the United States Senate. And I have to be careful here before I just get on a political rant, but I, I call this dilemma, the, the dilemma of really good people not being qualified in the 21st century to run for high national public office, 
because of the corrosiveness of the party system and the games you have to play to be in with the people who are going to control your future at the national party level. I, I call it the, my Joe Lieberman test. And there, there are a lot of politicians who have opportunistically changed parties and all that. I believe Joe Lieberman renounced his party ties and, and tried to sit in the middle because that's who he was. And I, I thought that uh, in the 2000 ticket, he was Al Gore's uh, vice presidential running mate. And I thought they had that ticket upside down. I really liked Lieberman. But when he renounced his affiliation with the Democrat Party and he was trying to do at the national level what Charlie Baker has done in the state of Massachusetts, he failed miserably. There's not a place for Joe Lieberman in the, the national political scene in the United States Senate. And he hung on for quite a while because he's a smart guy and his policies are good. But he simply didn't have a home. And I think that's a sad commentary on national politics in this country and the, and the influences of the parties. And I've renounced my party affiliation, gosh, I don't know, it's going on 30 years maybe. And in North Carolina, you could be quote unquote unaffiliated. I have no affiliation with any party. And I, I am very happy there. But I look at the political landscape and, I, and I, I listen to what Charlie Baker has to say. And I'm like, this guy should be running for national law. But the reason I'm, I, I'm talking about this is that that's who Charlie Baker is, I think. But when you choose to work for the National Collegiate Athletic Association, you are taking all those values and tossing them out the window because the National Collegiate Athletic Association is built on values that are fundamentally unreasonable, fundamentally unfair, fundamentally intolerant, and fundamentally un-American. And there's nothing that I heard in the words that Charlie Baker spoke during this rollout and during this press conference that were any different than what we've heard from Mark Emmert for 12 years, Miles Brand before him, or from the current class of NCAA bureaucrats who uh, still believe that the status quo is worth fighting for, and Greg Sankey and all the Republicans in the Senate and all of these NCAA minions on the governing boards and on all these committees and the university presidents, all of them in the Power Five, all of them. It, it just sounds to me like more of the same. And it appears that the uh, value that the NCAA and Power Five, or actually I should say Power Five and NCAA, this is a Power Five show, the value they see in Charlie Baker is that they can use his personal reasonableness and fairness and tolerance, those principles that he applied in the state of Massachusetts, as a, a shield so that he can go in to the United States Senate and sell fundamentally unreasonable, unfair, intolerant NCAA Power 5 policies, notably including the federal protection of the NCAA and Power 5's un-American compensation limits and this, these three death provisions that will end the athletes' rights movement. So let me just get to this press conference, and, and I'm going to use those quotes from the montage to go through the themes that came up. But I, I just want to say that this had a really bizarre feel to it to me, and they had 
Baker sitting behind uh, a desk. I, I guess it was uh, in his office, and he has the American flag on one side and then the flag of the state of, of Massachusetts on the other. And you had Linda Livingstone giving her speech, and it was all full of congratulations and what a wonderful job they did. And then Grant Hill came in for a credibility cameo, and I think its purpose was to provide a little bit of cushion between those uh, three W's that, that Dana O'Neill identified in her article, and then they got into the Q&A, and it, it had this Saturday Night Live skit quality to it, and it also had a forced feeling. It's like people were forcing themselves to get jacked up about this. You know, it was like one of those awkward wedding toasts when a member of the family is trying to say all the right things when you can tell in their heart of hearts they're not quite sure that this is the right match. And as part of this grand PR rollout, there was a companion piece on the NCAA website. And when you go to the website now, today, I, I saw this yesterday, the gateway page is consumed. The whole screen is consumed by a statist portrait of Charlie Baker, a photo there with Charlie smiling. And it says, President in waiting in full caps. And then you click on the more button and, and you get taken to a page that, let's see, it's welcome to the NCAA incoming President Charlie Baker. And it's a list of all these wonderful things, this effusive praise from stakeholders across the sports nation on what a great hire this was. And, by, and most of it came from people who were connected to institutions that Baker had been connected to. So you had a lot of tweets from people in the state of Massachusetts or people connected to Harvard or the Ivy League and, and that kind of thing. And that was all nice stuff. But at the very top in this massive square, at the very beginning, under the SEC logo, is the statement from Commissioner Greg Sankey on new NCAA President Charlie Baker. Boy, I would love to know the conversation that went uh, behind the decision to, to, to roll out Sankey. Emperor Sankey speaks. <laughs> and this alone should be a clue to Charlie Baker that something doesn't make sense here when uh, you got the SEC football interest as the headliner for the announcement of your presidency at the NCAA. So uh, let me translate here for you, Charlie. That statement is a reminder to you of who the hell is in control of the voluntary regulation of college sports, who the hell's in charge of the NCAA, and who the hell's in charge of college sports. And it is not Harvard basketball or Ivy League basketball or Division I men's basketball. It is football, baby. It is big-time football, and right now at least, in particular, SEC football. So uh, let me just read to you what Emperor Sankey has to say. He says, Congratulations to Governor Charlie Baker as he assumes his new role as president of the NCAA. Governor Baker brings an impressive track record of leadership to the NCAA office, and his ability to build consensus on complex issues will be important in this era of transformation for college athletics. I look forward to hearing his vision and collaborating on the future of college sports. So shall it be written. So shall it be done. Thank you, Emperor Saint. So let me just go through the montage and the themes that came up. And I've talked about a couple of the major themes. Uh, and this thing was kicked off by Linda Livingstone, who 
is the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors and also was on the search committee. And I've talked quite a bit about her role as a propagandist for NCAA interests and the power that she wields. In particular, with respect to that September 30th, 2021 hearing in the House, the only hearing of the seven hearings on college sports that have occurred since February of 2020, the only hearing in the House. And it was a genuflection to the collegiate model, to Miles Brandt's collegiate model. And she sat right next to Mark Emmert and served up a bunch of garbage. And she appeared in her capacity as the president of Baylor University, not as a member of the NCAA Board of Governors or the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. I mean, she was wearing multiple hats there and only talked about one of them, unfortunately. And she was just serving up the sky's falling narrative. If we can't take money from uh, Power Five football, men's basketball players, and then shove it downstream to a beneficiary class that is comparatively well off and white, we're back to the three W's. We can apply that to Miles Brand's regressive transfer of wealth. But she was sitting behind the microphone and she was the face of that. And that divisive and corrosive narrative was an important part of this press conference. I'm not quite sure if Baker really understood the gravity of of the themes that Livingstone introduced and that the PR people introduced. And you have to wonder who was sitting at the strategy tables before this rollout. You can rest assured that the NCAA's PR people, their really well-compensated PR people were guiding this discussion. And it all came back in one way or another to an us versus them, the sky is falling narrative. And I'm going to talk about how that came up specifically in in some of these quotes, but Baker played right along. So Livingstone leads off with a discussion about Baker's ability to build consensus and uh, to work across party lines and to deal with really diverse constituencies, taking a bipartisan approach that transcends conventional political divides. And, you know, that was really an important theme. And, And I've talked a bit about that. And then the next clip, Livingstone is saying that we need to build a sustainable model for college athletics. And to do that, we have to engage and motivate Congress to enact legislation that helps us modernize our framework. Modernize. I mean, that word should be stricken from the NCAA vocabulary. They've been trotting that word out really since 2019 at the very beginning of the discussion of this nil debate. Michael Drake, former Ohio State University president and former chair of the NCAA Board of Governors trotted that out in the discussion over name, image, and likeness. It was splashed all over the NCAA website, and it was in all their public relations statements. We want to modernize college sports, but only within principles that would take us back to the 1950s, that that fundamental Orwellian tension and the profound dishonesty underlying their modernization movements. And then you had, uh, let's see, Dennis Dodd from CBS, you had Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated, and then Chris Vanini of The Athletic, all asking in different ways about congressional intervention. And Dodd put it in terms of a resolution on the nil matter. And Delger just said, uh, how much time do you expect to spend in Washington, D.C.? And then Vanini couched it in terms of uh, bipartisan agreement to make changes that college sports needs. Some of the assumptions built into these questions assumed that the NCAA Power Five status quo talking points were legitimate. And I'll just say this, the NCAA is not going to have this kind of staged public presentation under the banner of a press conference unless the people that are invited to that press conference more or less agree 
with the NCAA's view of the world. And some of these questions on their face seemed okay, but Baker really didn't answer them in any detail. There was a question about compensation limits, a question about the transfer portal. And Baker's standard response was, well, you know, I just don't know enough about those issues. I need to listen. This is the listening phase of my leadership and all that happy malarkey. But uh, there really wasn't any pressure on Baker to offer a meaningful substantive response to some of these questions. And then we transition into what I call the racialized dog whistle themes. And this was done at a very broad brush level. And for people who haven't followed closely what's happened in college sports since 2019 and the motivations of the in-system stakeholders like the NCAA and the Power Five, uh, a lot of this language wouldn't be obvious. You really need a translator. And I'm going to be that translator. When I listen to this, it just jumps off the the page or, or jumps off the screen to me. But a lot of people would read right through it. But it's really important because this is part of the public relations campaign, the, the gaslighting campaign to lead the public and decision makers to believe one thing about the NCAA when in fact what they're doing is fundamentally inconsistent with the values they claim to hold. So throughout this press conference, there are relentless references to how important college sports is in America at at the cultural level, at the values level. And Baker referred to it as the jewel, the, the jewel that is college sports. And so we have this prized asset, this cultural asset that we have to protect. And the way that both Livingstone and Baker talked about the value of college sports, the assumption underneath those proclamations was that college sports, all of college sports were at risk. This was the sky is falling on steroids. And and one of the reasons this was so cleverly disguised is that neither Livingstone nor Baker talked about it in terms of any of the specific threats. Some of the questions identified the specific threats, but Baker didn't speak on those terms. And it was really a clever way by bringing some of those specific issues into the conversation through these questions. And I don't know if these were planted questions. I don't know the terms under which these reporters participated in in this discussion. But Baker was coming back to this broad brush theme that we have to protect this crown jewel of American culture. So I just want to give you a few of the comments that both Livingstone and Baker made to emphasize that point in very subtle ways. So Livingstone says, the popularity and interest in college sports continues to grow across the country and around the world. They create a pathway to opportunity for hundreds of thousands of students annually, and they are uh, vital and essential to the life on our campuses. They're a source of thrilling entertainment and really important moments for millions of fans across the country and really are embedded in the culture of our country. And in that presentation, Livingstone is doing something that the NCAA did in their uh, congressional hearings, uh, really starting in, in early 2020, and that was to conflate the interests of the people whose labors underwrite this entire business model, and, and those are Power Five football, men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African American, with the interests of the rest of the entire association. 
So when these people are speaking in terms of hundreds of thousands of athletes, and in a press release that was a companion part of this interview or this press conference, they specifically used the 500,000 figure. There are 500,000 athletes in the NCAA across all three divisions, Division One, Division Two, Division Three, and Remember, Division Three is comprised mostly of small private schools, and they don't award athletic scholarships at all. They, they have no commercial value. So they, what they do through this conflation is to try to convince the American public that the entire sports model across the entire college sports landscape will come to a fatal collapse unless the NCAA and Power Five get what they want from Congress. And lower-level Division One and all of Divisions Two and Three are completely irrelevant to the discussion that has occurred in Congress. That d- the discussion is relevant only to the highest level of Division One, and that is the Power Five conferences, which is why you had the Power Five conference commissioners sending a joint letter to Congress in May of 2020. You didn't have a group of Division Two conference commissioners or Division Three conference commissioners or lower-level Division I conference commissioners because they're irrelevant to the discussion. This discussion only lives where the money lives and where the true profit revenue-producing athletes live, and that is in big-time football and men's basketball. And this entire congressional campaign, this entire public relations charade has been directed to eliminating the economic liberties that that single class of laborers in this overall marketplace bring to the system. That's it. But this rhetoric is just profoundly dishonest. And it is racialized because once you move outside of the upper level Division I sports and you move down into lower level Division One, and then through Division Two and, and into Division Three, the sports products become increasingly white across the board. Division three is overwhelmingly white and suggesting that those white beneficiaries of the status quo downstream are having their opportunities put at risk by what's happening in this discussion about profit athletes and the power five is racialized and it is an us versus them mentality. And they really reinforced that in a very subtle way in this interview. So let me go on to something that Baker said. He says, it's important that a lot of these issues get dealt with and get dealt with in a way that works. And when I say works, I mean works for everybody. It can't just work for a few. And I'm going to stop right there. At that point, Baker is buying in to this divisive, racialized garbage that the NCAA has been putting out since 2019. Who does he mean by the few? And our intrepid reporters at the press conference didn't ask him what he meant when he said the few. That just jumps off the page. And that's a question you might want to ask. Who who the hell are the few? Well, the few in reality are the African-American men in, in Power 5 football, men's basketball, whose labors underwrite the entire sports industrial complex in college sports. So it has to work for everybody. It can't work for just a few. And that framing is a direct, explicit us versus them. And the us are overwhelmingly white beneficiaries of the status quo. And the few, the only people this system's working for are these few athletes in the profit sports that just don't know how good they've got it. And that has a dog whistle component to it that's just really distressing to me. He goes on to say, The big worry I have, which I'm sure is the worry of a lot of people have when it comes to college sports, everybody agrees with me, we're back to this consensus thing, 
is if we can't figure out a way to organize and frame the future of college sports on a platform where we can deal with the fact that there are a lot of different organizations with a wide variety of capabilities and capacities to participate, we're going to lose a tremendous opportunity to provide a real opportunity to literally hundreds of thousands of kids going forward. So now, after creating this framework, this us versus them, this racialized us versus them, then he goes in to say, look, this thing that we love so much is at risk if we focus on the interests of the few. So this is a delegitimization tactic. And that was the kind of argument that was so effective in killing the California revenue sharing bill and also in leading Cory Booker to bid against himself and pull the revenue sharing component of the athlete's bill of rights. It's this many versus few. And if we do anything to recognize the interests of the few, then we are compromising the interests of the many. And we're back into this ridiculous zero-sum thinking, not just in, in terms of equity, but in the, the financial market, that there simply isn't enough money to go around. And it's just stupid on its face. And then, let's see, I threw in a couple quotes here where Baker says, to me, the jewel of college is the opportunity and the access that college sports provides to so many people and the experiences and the learning that comes with that. And he says, I can make the case generally to the public, to student athletes, to alumni, and to fans about what the best way to ensure that we don't lose this jewel going forward. And, and then Baker reinforces that theme. And, and this was in response to a question about compensation limits. And he talks about the sports fans in America and how they value the college experience. And then he talks about how enormous that community is. And he said, it's one that I believe is going to want to see that opportunity to continue to be part of the student-athletes' lives and the sort of school community lives, and then the broader community of alumni and fans going forward. And then in some ways, I think it is an, an, an enormous asset when you're trying to have a discussion about what the best ways to ensure that what we have is not lost going forward. And that is so important because what he is doing there, and Linda Livingstone did the same thing, it, it's a different kind of us versus them. It is this huge base of, of stakeholders that extend outside of the athlete community and into the broader community, to fans, to alumni, to the communities. And in that framing, Baker is basically elevating the interest of white stakeholders above the interest of black laborers. It's the very thing that the NCAA got away with in the antitrust cases by using a consumer-facing justification, amateurism-based justification for their compensation limits. And they said that consumers have a preference for amateurism and that if we do anything that compromises amateurism or eliminates it, then consumers will flee. That's turned out to be an absolutely false argument. But a few scholars have rightfully pointed out that in that framing, you are substituting the interests of the black laborers for the preferences of largely white consumers. And it's that same framework, that same philosophy, that same tactic that Baker is using here. And if we just pile on the, the stakeholders, the white stakeholders that have an interest in this jewel that we have, this cultural jewel of college sports, then in a comparative analysis between those interests and the interests of the, the few becomes uh, fewer and fewer, you know, and, and it seems less significant and less legitimate. And that is a tactic. It is a purposeful tactic that the NCAA and Power Five have used in their campaign to end the athletes' rights movement. And then the very last quote I put in there because it's so important to understand what the hell's really going on here. 
and who's really calling the shots. But Baker is talking about coming in and he's saying, yeah, I got to talk to the stakeholders. And what was the phrase that he used here? A distributed decision-making model. He talks about how many stakeholders there are, how he's got to communicate with all these constituencies. And he's just here to listen and learn as if what those constituencies have to say has a damn thing to do with what the NCAA is going to do from a policy standpoint, or from a rules-making standpoint, or from a litigation standpoint, or from a lobbying standpoint. The whole purpose of this cynical campaign that the NCAA launched in 2019 was to keep decision-makers and stakeholders as ignorant as possible about what they were actually trying to do through this protective federal legislation, and also the true purpose of it, which was to end the athletes' rights movement and to make it impossible for uh, revenue-producing athletes, profit athletes in football and men's basketball to enjoy the same rights as any other Americans. When you talk honestly on those terms, I think most stakeholders in the broader community, fans and alumni and in-system stakeholders and maybe even in-system decision-makers, might think about these issues differently. But I don't think Charlie Baker is going to go out on his listening tour and his talking tour and ask stakeholders what they think about the preemption of of state laws that, that interfere with NCAA regulatory authority or antitrust immunity or athletes can't be employees or the tactics that they've used in their litigation campaign or what their high-priced lobbyists are actually lobbying for in in Congress and the bills they support and the bills they oppose. You're not going to have that discussion. So what are you talking about, Charlie? You're talking about the same garbage that came through this press conference that was specifically designed to pull at the heartstrings of white stakeholders and to delegitimize the black labor force. And and as I'm watching this press conference, it just, it's like a slow motion car crash to me. And and I see it happening. And I'm just thinking, Charlie, don't do it. Don't do it. You you probably don't understand what's happening here or the gravity of it. And you need to pull back and speak on your own terms, not through a staged, self-serving press conference put together by NCAA propagandists. So we'll see what happens, but I didn't think this was a very good first step forward for Baker. And maybe he will come around and as he understands the business model a little better, start to speak more intelligently and more honestly than Mark Emmert did. But you have to believe that the NCAA and the Power Five and the SEC and Greg Sankey and the people who are really running college sports right now aren't going to hire somebody for that spot who isn't willing to preach the party lines. Anyway, just something to keep an eye on. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.